This is the good news held out to us in Malachi's prophecy, held out in the fulfillment of Jesus, who came and became flesh with us and for us. I'm going to read Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, through the end of the book. It's just a few verses, and then we will pick up the first 27 verses of John's Gospel. Malachi closes by saying, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, so that I do not come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then there were 400 years of silence. John begins his gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And this is the testimony of John when Jews and priests sent I'm sorry, when Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Well, then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. They had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. You join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, you have always been good to your people, and you have always intended good for your people. 
the beauty for us in seeing prophecy and fulfillment side by side is that we are reminded once again, your grace is not a plan that you have worked out and fiddled with over time. You have planned it before all history began. You have planned to redeem for yourself a people, to gather for yourself sons and daughters, to make worshipers out of your enemies. And so now we hear both the promise and the joyful declaration that the promised one has come. He has filled up all the promises that fill up all the things we lack and need. And we ask that you would turn our eyes to him. Give us eyes to see his radiance. Give us ears to hear the good news of who he is and what he has done for us. You have sent Jesus the Son into the world. Through him, you have given us the privilege and the right to be called sons and daughters of the Most High. So we ask that you would comfort us and establish us in this good news. Fill us with the hope of it. Let that hope change us. As you have told us, your hope does. Your hope that never fails. We ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. As we wind down in Malachi, I told you last week, in our next-to-last passage in Malachi, that we finally got to hear repentance. We finally got to hear the good and refreshing news that the gospel actually works. After weeks of going through Malachi's prophecy, and after weeks of hearing the indictment of the people, the Lord telling the people all of their failings, all of their satisfaction in illegitimate priesthood, all of their maintaining and proclamation that their weak and imperfect sacrifices were enough, we finally got to see the gospel break through and the gospel break their hearts and change them. And we had the declaration from the Lord, I will make you my treasured possession. It's actually where we're going to sing how deep the Father's love for us at the beginning of every one of our worship services this month. Because the line is spelled out so beautifully there that he would give his only son to make wretches like you and me his treasure. Well, as Malachi closes, we have not just the declaration that he will make us his treasured possession, but he gives us the promise of what it will look like when that starts happening. I told you at the very beginning of Malachi that the theme of priesthood is rich and thick through the book. A lot of the indictments, a lot of the accusations have to do with the illegitimacy of the Levitical priesthood at the time. Priestly abuses, people led astray into false worship and weak worship by false and weak priests. But the book as a whole actually has a little bit different priestly dynamic. You see, the way things were settled in Israel, if you had a case that was difficult, you would go to the elders at the city gate, and you would ask them to decide your case for you. You would ask them to decide how they would assign guilt. But if it was too hard for them, Deuteronomy 17 gives a separate provision. If it's really, really difficult, if you can't determine whether or not sin is present or whether or not someone ought to make restitution, what you do is you take the matter to the priest. And you let him judge. 
And actually throughout the book of Malachi, Malachi the prophet has been deciding the matter, so to speak, with the authority that that priestly judge offers. He hasn't asked for evidence. He's just offered evidence all the way through. Because the Lord has been rendering the verdict guilty. Every week, in every passage, He has said guilty, 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 guilty. And what we have at the very end of the book is the sentence. The verdict is unquestionably that we are guilty. The Lord's people then were guilty and we're guilty now. I told you all through the book we would see not just their failing, but we would hear echoes of our own, our own failures as the royal priesthood. The verdict comes back guilty, but this week we get the sentence. And the sentence is the delightfully unexpected sentence of redemption, not judgment. After the verdict is rendered, the Lord says, I sentence you to full and final redemption, and I will send a messenger ahead to prepare the way and turn hearts back. And so that's the promise we get. This sending of Elijah to come and turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and children back to the fathers. You know from reading through Malachi over the last several weeks, like we said last week, it's been bookended by love. It started out in one one, I have loved you, and it ended with the promise, I will delight over you and make you my treasured possession. And so here's the promise that that will be fulfilled in this sentence, so to speak, of redemption. I thought this was a good transition. I wanted to preach in the Gospel of John next. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought we need to put together the promise that Elijah will come and we need to see the coming of Elijah and John the Baptist. The awkward thing for me is that John denies it. I picked the only gospel that starts off with John denying his role as Elijah. It's kind of a bad play on my part. The good news for me is that John is wrong here. That might make you a little bit nervous, but John never claims infallibility. He's allowed to be wrong. In the opening chapter of Luke, one of the beautiful ironies, after the silence that follows Malachi, the 400 years of silence where the people receive no word from the Lord, the first word of the Lord that breaks back into creation actually comes to Zechariah the priest. After all the indictments against priests, after this priestly lawsuit in Malachi, now the word that redemption has come comes back to the priesthood. And Zechariah is serving in the temple, burning incense, and the people are praying outside of the temple. And he's confronted by an angel who tells him his son, John, will be born with a very specific ministry to prepare the way of the Lord before He comes, and His job will be to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children back to their fathers. It's very clear that John is going to be Elijah. It's declared from before his birth. And Jesus makes the point in Matthew 11, 
It's hard to understand. He even prefaces it with the words, if you can accept it, John is the Elijah who was supposed to come. I think what we have here is the difficulty in John's own mouth. It's hard for him to accept that he would have that prominent a role. Jesus says of him more than once that he was the most humble man that's ever lived. And so he is. He's trying to distance himself from any status, any glory, because his job as witness to the light is to point people to the light of the world. He is supposed to prepare the way for the Lord and point him out to people and preach his gospel and point disciples toward him, not himself. And so when they ask him in rapid-fire succession, who are you? Are you Elijah, the prophet, the Christ? Every time, John takes a step backwards. Nope, nope, not me. Nope, nope. You're looking for the one who comes after me. And so John takes the posture of humility. He does identify himself as the voice crying out in the wilderness from Isaiah's prophecy. I think it's very likely John just didn't understand how that fit with the coming of Elijah. But John's role is important and simple. And it actually has nothing to do whether or not with whether or not he understands his title. It's not contingent on him understanding every prophecy that was foretold expecting his coming. His role is not just crucially, it is solely to point people to Jesus, to prepare the way for him, calling out for repentance and the turning of hearts to be ready for Jesus the Savior. And that he understands, and that he does. Remember last week, we looked at the son of righteousness. That was part of the promise. I will make you my treasured possession, the Lord says. I will make you a land in which I delight. And the son of righteousness will rise upon you with healing in its wings. I made a passing reference to Hark the Herald last week that you're used to singing that Christologically. You don't think twice about it. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Now I want you to think about the way you sing the song and the way it fits with these two passages put together, or these two books, rather. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Now think of the way John has described him. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. It's as if the hymn writer took the opening verses of John and inserted them in the middle of the line. Malachi on both ends of the stanza and John 1 right in the middle. The beauty of a prophecy like that is that the sun comes in unmistakable beauty and glory when it rises. Having walked in darkness, having longed for redemption, having needed redemption desperately walking in the darkness of the curse and the darkness of our sin. Sunrise should be absolutely beautiful and overwhelming. It should seem a little odd to us that you need someone to testify about a sunrise. Many of you went on vacation 
this summer, many of you went to the beach. Some of you were industrious enough to get up early and walk on the beach to see the sunrise up over the horizon. To see that first orange burning out on the water and then see the glory of the sun as it rises. And you didn't miss it. You couldn't miss it. You didn't need someone to testify for. You didn't need a witness to come and offer legal testimony about whether or not that just happened. You knew it happened. One of the tragic ironies is that when the sun of righteousness enters the world and rises as the light of the world, the light that shines in darkness, as John says it in verse 5, nobody really noticed. The problem wasn't with the sunrise. The problem is men's blindness. John will play out this theme farther out in the book. Chapters 2 and 3, we'll hear things like, The darkness hated the light. Men loved the darkness. There is a spiritual blindness and inability to it, but there's also a very willful rejection of it. We like the darkness because our sin isn't exposed in darkness. That's not new or unique to us, and it's not new or unique to the people of Jesus' time. That has been true of mankind since the fall. Just like John was saying as we went into confession of sin and assurance of pardon... We like our propaganda. We like our self-published pamphlets. It's a way for us to manage the darkness and to ignore the light. And John's job was to come in and make sure that people didn't ignore it. John's job was to bear witness to it. To shake people awake. To tell them they're blind. And to hope, like you and I do, that the Lord would give them eyes to see. They would turn around and face the sunrise, the sun of righteousness rising over them. They would see the beauty veiled in the simplicity of the incarnation, and they would rejoice. For all we might say about John the Baptist, that's his entire role summed up. He's just supposed to bear witness of the light. He's just supposed to tell people they're blind to it, but that it is happening. It's the Lord who grants eyes to see. It's the Lord who makes the radiance of His Son visible and enjoyed and appreciated in people who were once blind but then are granted sight. And that's mostly the point in John's prologue. Some of you are worried that I'm going to skip over those first verses with the eternality of the Word and a doctrine of the Incarnation in 14 and what it means for the Word to become flesh. I want to put you at ease, but I'm not going to cover them this morning. 
We're going to circle back next week, and we're going to look at the incarnation more particularly. This morning, I want us to think about the way that John is setting us up to read his whole gospel. What is it that he wants us to catch in the good news? And so for just a minute, not at the expense of the doctrines that are richly laid down for us in all of these verses, I want you to forget what you know about these verses. When we read this prologue to John's gospel, it should read to us like the account of creation. Remember in Genesis 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And the first thing he made was light and darkness, and he separated them. And you should hear strong echoes of that, except that Jesus' supremacy over all of creation is pronounced from the very beginning. In Genesis 1, it is, in the beginning, God created something. And this starts out, in the beginning, the Word already was. Creation is echoed in the next few verses. But then you have the light and dark motif played out. The light and the dark are clearly separate, but they're not just separated for function. They're not just separated with different roles. They're antagonistic toward each other. The light is invading and dispelling, marching through the darkness, so to speak. Verse 5 is right. The darkness did not overcome it. You're supposed to know from the very beginning that as much antagonism as you might find, as much enmity as you'll see through the rest of the book between light and darkness, John tells you up front, the darkness doesn't win. The darkness in the world doesn't win. The darkness that sought to snuff out the light of Jesus doesn't win. And the darkness that lives in your heart and in my heart and in our church and in our homes never wins. Jesus' light cannot be absorbed. It cannot be snuffed out. It cannot be overtaken. It cannot be conquered by the darkness. That's not the way light and darkness ever work. Remember, blindness never overcomes light. Blindness just fails to enjoy it. Light invades darkness and dispels it. Light always carries this kind of victory into darkness. And so as you hear those echoes from the creation account, as you hear John setting you up for the way the story is going to unfold through the rest of the gospel, you should hear not just a playful allusion to the creation account, you should hear John saying, listen carefully, this is the dawn of the new creation. This light entering the world, this word who already was, this beginning we're talking about should signal that Jesus is coming in to recreate and to make new. He's not coming in to tweak creation. He's not coming in to repair a few things. He's coming in to remake it. Next week, we will come back and look at the beauty of the Incarnation. 
Next week, we'll come back and look a little more closely at what it means for the Word to actually become flesh for us and to dwell among us. This week, I don't want you to miss. John is not promising that Jesus is going to fix you a little bit. John, from the very beginning, is telling you, Jesus comes to remake us. Jesus comes to remake us individually, as his people, as a church, and he comes to remake all of creation. And if you read the story any other way, you've missed it. It's no accident that he starts out with this mistake about John's identity, this confusion about who John is, because actually through the rest of the book, he's going to build his case not so much on the actions of Jesus, though those are very important, He is going to center his entire gospel proclamation on the identity of Jesus. And so he starts laying out those themes for us here with John's identity. He starts off his entire gospel not first with the ministry of Jesus, not first with some action of Jesus. There will be plenty of those in the chapters that follow. He grounds the entire thing in the identity of Jesus, the incarnate Word. Who was the Word in the beginning? Who has He been? What does He possess in Himself? What is His relationship to all of creation? And that's the way the book is going to unfold. People will constantly ask questions of Him. Who are you? Or they will say to each other, who is this? Instead of making lots of references to the kingdom of God as a concept outside of himself, in John's gospel uniquely, he will talk about himself most often as son of God and son of man. He's going to mention the kingdom three times in the course of all the chapters of John. But he's going to repeatedly refer to his own identity, his own status as son. And if that's not enough, all the way through the book, he's going to keep saying the words, I am. There are seven famous I am statements, but there are many more. You're used to hearing these. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. The one we read in our assurance this morning, I am the, resurrec- I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15 the beautiful passage that you could hear echoes of back in Malachi when, he, when the Lord promised that their vine would be fruitful forever. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine. He makes these I am statements not just to tell people a little bit about himself. He constantly phrases them so that they can't help but hear him owning for himself the I am of Exodus 3. Remember when Moses is out in the wilderness herding sheep for his father-in-law, and he comes upon a bush, and it's burning, and the bush tells him to take his shoes off because he's on holy ground. And so they have this interaction, the Lord and Moses, and Moses questions him, well, who am I supposed to say sent me to do all the things you're charging me with? And the Lord answers back, you should tell them I am sent you.
In Exodus, you had the I am sending Moses. And here, very clearly, John tells us the I am is coming to replace Moses. Remember that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus, the one who will spend the rest of the book declaring himself to be the I am. One of the best commentaries I read on this passage was the best because its opening line was, when you read the prologue to John's gospel, you should consider yourself standing on holy ground. The more I thought about it and the more I read the passage, the more I thought we should have read this with our shoes off. In a sense, John's gospel is going to be the burning bush for us. As we stand in the Lord's presence, hearing His voice to us constantly say to us, I am. I am the one who is. I am the one who created all things. I am the one who redeems all things. I am the one who cares for you in these ways. John, throughout his entire gospel, will tell us a lot about what Jesus did. He will tell us a lot about miraculous signs. He will tell us a lot about significant and puzzling I am statements. But always, those things are supposed to point us back to who he is. The way John has written his gospel, we should become preoccupied with the identity of Jesus. We should be asking along with the disciples, who is this? Who is this really? What is he really like? All of the actions, all of the teaching, all of the miracles, all of the sermons, all of the I am statements are just the outworking of who John says Jesus is in the very beginning. So you can think of the prologue, this opening of John's gospel, as the real peek behind the curtain to what the message is. The next 20 plus chapters are just going to fill out and show his work as he establishes the truth of it. That's even the way he ends his gospel. You're familiar with this, most of you. John ends this gospel with an explicit purpose statement. But listen carefully to the way that he says it. Speaking of the signs that he's shown in the book, he says... Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these that are included are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That you may believe who he really is, what his identity is. And that by believing that, you may have life in his name. John hangs all of his hopes and all of our hopes as a church on who Jesus is, the substance of his identity. So we will read many things that Jesus says and does, but they are always constantly revealing who he is and confirming for us our faith and who we've believed him to be. And lest you miss it, I want to point out to you that the gospel, as John preaches it to us, hangs on who Jesus is 
And it hangs on him changing who we are. John is not primarily giving us an example to follow. He is not primarily teaching us better doctrine to be known and written down and diagrammed and memorized and boasted in. The doctrine will be crucially important because who we say Jesus is needs to be specific. But the gospel as John preaches it to us is in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he changed their identities. He gave them the right to become children of God. He changed what they are. He changed what you are and what I am and what we are as a church. Just like he'll preach the gospel to Nicodemus in chapter 3. You enter the kingdom. You belong to this God through nothing of your own. You just need to be changed. And so the substance of the gospel hope as John will hold it out, it will all hang on who Jesus is. The gospel hope for us is that Jesus in His grace changes who we are. It's a gospel of identity change. And actually, that's why this makes John's gospel a perfect book for many different readers. It is a perfect book for skeptics. And it's a perfect book for the curious. But don't ever forget, it's also a perfect book for the church. The you and in that statement that John makes at the end of the book, is actually plural. Because we're Texans, y'all should have translated it y'all. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that y'all, you collectively may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is not just an introductory grace. That is the grace of the gospel that sustains us continually once we become part of the church. We will constantly need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in Him only, we have life in His name. And that will challenge every other method of salvation and every other Savior we try to identify for ourselves. That's true whether you're skeptical, curious, or already part of the church. John and his gospel is going to march us through his argument, his joyful proclamation, his establishing and reiterating who Jesus is. To the point that if you don't like repetition, you're going to become nauseated. to skeptics and the curious in the church, John is going to say over and over, this is the word that was in the beginning. This is the word before all creation. This is the word who made all things and redeems all things and remakes his fallen creation. This is the light of the world that overcomes the darkness. This is the one who came uniquely 
the unique and only begotten Son of God who became flesh with us and for us. The Word made flesh through whom we are made children of God. So life in His name will mean that He constantly strips away from us all the other places we look for life. Throughout the book, He is going to constantly strip away from us our tendency to want to find life in certain relationships or a spouse or a lover or a career or a party or a candidate or our own spirituality or the depth of our own character. His gospel to us every week is going to be Find life in His name and no other. Believe that Jesus is who He is. By believing, you will have life in His name. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your grace to us. You are the Word who was in the beginning with the Father who made all things by your power and for your glory. You are the Word who came to be flesh for us and with us, to enter your creation and become man with us, to feel our weakness, to take on yourself the pain of the curse, not just for the sake of empathy, but seeking your victory all along, overcoming it as the promised redemption. Lord Jesus, all through the Old Testament, we have seen you pictured for us in types and shadows. And this morning as we read about you entering creation, Glorious and radiant like a sunrise, we see the light that cast those shadows to begin with. Would you be gracious to us now? You who are the bread of life, would you feed us at your feast with bread and wine? Would you hold the gospel out to us by your Spirit as you meet with us here to serve us as children who are loved and welcomed and fed and cared for? We break bread and drink wine together and preach to each other the glorious good news that there is no tragedy in you being broken for us and your life being poured out for us. Instead, the curse suffered the tragedy. Your death actually dealt a death blow to our sin and our oppressors and our suffering. Your rising offers us the hope and the promise and the joyful expectation, like we sang earlier, of that yet more glorious day. And we finally see you face to face. Lord Jesus, do these things for us, for your own glory and for our good as your children. You have brought us to the Father to be adopted be heirs with you. Let us now enjoy our inheritance. Let us enjoy it in sanctification. Let us enjoy it in the comfort and hope of the gospel. Let us enjoy it in the peace and reconciliation that you bought for us. 
Lord Jesus, we ask that you would do all of these things and fill up our celebration at your table. We ask them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.